Hello and welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Alan Herrera. This podcast is an educational program by the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents in the United States. That's AFPC USA. This episode is developed in partnership with the Heinrich Foundation. AFPC USA is solely responsible for the content of this episode. Today we'll explore the complexities of decision-making within the World Trade Organization. The looming 13th Ministerial Conference, that's MC13, raises questions about the future of the multilateral trading system, and we seek insights into this pressing matter. Consensus-based decision-making becomes increasingly challenging as the WTO grapples with a growing membership and an expanding global trade agenda. However, recent experiences with plurilateralism within the WTO provide a glimmer of optimism amidst the complexities. To shed light on these issues, we are joined by Dr. Deborah Elms, the head of trade policy at the Heinrich Foundation. With her extensive background, including serving as the executive director and founder of the Asian Trade Center, Dr. Elms is a leading expert on trade policy in the region. Stay tuned as we explore the challenges that WTO members face in reaching agreements and decipher what MC13 signals to the future of the multilateral trading system. Dr. Elms, uh, the first question I have here, I'm wondering, given the challenges of reaching agreements among 164 members at the World Trade Organization, what alternative pathways or strategies are being considered to facilitate decision making, particularly as the organization approaches the important um, ministerial conference uh, toward the end of February? I think that's a great question. I would say there's a couple of things they're trying. First is, can you reform the institution from within? So there's an ongoing dialogue about WTO reform, about processes and procedures that might speed up or facilitate getting to yes. Um, And that agenda has been underway for a while, but it's gaining a bit more momentum with every year that passes without significant outcomes. So reform the WTO from within. A second alternative is one that is being tried right now, which is to have subsets of members, smaller groupings of members who try to get an agreement and then locate that agreement within the WTO structure itself. So although not all 164 members are there, you have a pretty large number, depending on the the current, the topic, we have under activities underway with 90 to 110 members. So a, a big number even if it's not all of them, who are trying to reach an agreement on a smaller subset of issues. So that's the second approach. A third approach is to simply abandon the WTO and to say, if that institution is not working, we're not going to leave it. So people are not yet leaving the WTO, but they are shifting resources elsewhere. So where else could we get agreement on trade uh, um, and other economic issues? We could do it in smaller settings. We could do it in our region. We could do it on a bilateral basis. We could think about sector-specific commitments for like digital trade. So we could do it outside of the WTO. And at the moment, those are the three broad areas uh, to reform the WTO from within, to make smaller groupings within the WTO and see if they're successful, or to move outside of the organization altogether and make agreements outside of the WTO. So given all of this, 
How has the increase in membership and diversity affected the WTO's ability to make decisions through consensus? And are there specific examples or instances that you can think of where this challenge has been particularly pronounced? I think one of the reasons why we can't get to yes is that when you have 164 members, um, as I've written, if you if you just wanted to order lunch, you know, that is a painstaking and, and difficult process. And if you needed to have everyone agree on what you ate and where you plan to eat it, with 164, you can see how this quickly becomes an obstacle to getting anyone fed. And that's the same problem that the WTO has. As it's gotten bigger, and as that membership has become significantly more diverse from some of the smallest, poorest countries through some of the richest countries, largest, et cetera, you know, trying to get an agreement around what does a successful outcome look like is difficult. So there is a discussion and there has been for years about whether or not this consensus principle, the idea that everyone has to agree before things can move ahead, or at least that no one will block a decision. Um, is under discussion, is under review, but you can imagine now the next problem, in order to agree to change the consensus principle, you need consensus. <laughs> so you would have to get 164 members to agree to change the principle on consensus, and that has also proven difficult. So that is why there is a bit more creative thinking about alternatives um, than there was, because the more the institution grows, the harder it is to get an agreement. This sounds like an extremely daunting process. I really enjoyed actually the um, the the lunch metaphor that you made, just because um, I actually had never thought of it that way before. So I felt it was very well realized. Um, and given that this makes it, of course, very difficult to reach agreements, you discuss plurilateral agreements and. Uh, I have two questions here, but the first, um, could you provide examples of plurilateral agreements that fall into the first type? You discussed two types, so such as the information technology agreement, otherwise known as the ITA. Yeah, so the first type of agreement says, in, if, if we're going to have a smaller grouping, then, and we're going to do it within the WTO, we need to make sure that that final agreement, whatever it is, provides real benefits. So how do we do that? Well, one way is we make sure that we cover a sufficient amount of trade so that those who are left out of the agreement are a relatively small portion of overall trade in whatever that is. And so information technology agreement was electronics, equipment, mostly computers, TVs, remote controls, et cetera. So how can we get the largest majority of participants in electronics trade together to agree to drop tariffs on those products to zero. The ITA, the Information Technology Agreement, we've now had two of them, they came together and said, for all of us who are participants, we will drop tariffs to zero. And we will extend that benefit to everyone else. So to those who are not participating in the agreement, if you want to send things to us, we will continue to keep our tariffs at zero. If we want to send tariffs to you because you're not a member, we will pay whatever tariffs you think is appropriate. So the idea here was we could make an agreement with a smaller group of countries, but the benefits get spread to everyone. Everyone has access to zero tariffs among the participating members. So that's one idea around a plurilateral. We negotiated in a smaller subset, but the benefits flow to everyone. And the second part of that is that the obligations or the commitments do not flow to you if you didn't agree. 
So you get the benefits, but you don't have to pay the cost, essentially. And that's acceptable if the agreement is um, among the largest share of countries participating in whatever the thing is, right? So if the thing is 90% coverage, then it's more acceptable to let the last 10% of trade have access to the benefits without having to pay the costs of having those benefits. So that that's why ITA works, but it's proven challenging to find other kinds of agreements that would work like that. So then what then what is the um how, how do you distinguish then uh in regard to the second type of plurilateral agreement? You discuss um that this is derived from Article 2.3 of the WTO. So I'm curious, um, could you elaborate on the current agreements that fall under the second type? You One of them uh, that you do discuss is the Agreement on Civil Aircraft and the Government procure, uh, Procurement Agreement, sorry, the otherwise known as the GPA. What is the difference here? So the difference is that the ITA, the Information Technology Agreement, says you get the benefits whether or not you signed up. Yes. And again, that, that's acceptable for the members who are not members <laughs> uh, because they get benefits. The second type, which you just mentioned, the Government Procurement Agreement is one of them, says, no, no, no. This is an agreement that doesn't flow through automatically to all of you. This is an agreement that applies only to those members who agreed to be part of it. And in the case of government procurement, this is a very big deal because the government, depending on the market, you know, can easily be 20 or even 40 percent of the overall market in an economy could be government buying and certain, you know, cars or tables, computers, laptops, travel arrangements, whatever it is. So government can be a very big purchaser in an economy. And while the GPA, let me be clear, does not open up all of that procurement to others, it opens up some of that procurement to others, but only if you sign the agreement. So only GPA members have access to the government procurement contracts of other members. If you were not part of the GPA and you're not interested in joining the GPA now, you cannot access the GPA benefits that are available to members only. So the first kind of agreement, the first kind of plurilateral is, again, done with a smaller group, but the benefits extended to everyone. And the second kind of plurilateral is done with a smaller group, but the benefits stay with members only. Mm -hmm. Given all this, you discussed the, the value in uh, the joint statement initiatives, otherwise known as the JSIs, uh, throughout your paper. Um, so regarding the JSIs, particularly those on services, on services, domestic regulation and investment facilitation, they've aimed at creating greater transparency and streamlining and streamlining processes. How have these initiatives, Dr. Elms, brought about changes and what impact do you believe they will have on improving the business environment for companies that are engaged in cross-border trade? If you can't get an agreement among 164 members on, for example, new market opening, tariff reductions, or you can't get commitments to open up new services or investment sectors for competition from other WTO members, then what do you do? Well, you say to the business community, what, what are the actual impediments that you face? And in many cases, the business community will say, our problems are actually not tariffs so much. What are our problems? Well, one big problem we have is that if we want to provide a particular service, for example, 
we have to apply to provide that service in a market. So here's an example. If you want to provide engineering services, right? You want to help design an airport or a subdivision. You may need to have a license in order to practice engineering services in a particular WTO market. So that application can be easy or difficult to find out about, to fill in, to return. The fees attached to that could be small, they could be enormous. There's a tremendous amount of variation around these applications and the delivery of services in foreign markets. So the WTO members who are involved in this negotiation said, well, actually, if we can't get more discussions about how to open up more services sectors and subsectors, and we can't agree on how to treat them once they're in the market, which is traditional WTO kind of negotiations, then let's focus on something else that does matter to companies, which is how do we keep these procedures and practices as open, clear, transparent as possible. So we could sign an agreement among ourselves that says, these are the rules about how, in the case of investment, how we handle investment regulations and investment decisions in terms of, again, applications, et cetera. And in the cases of domestic services, how do we handle the application procedures to deliver those services? So we could make a, a, a smaller grouping agreement that promises certain kinds of transparency, certain kinds of obligations about the speed with which you'll look at those applications and so forth. And that's the kind of commitment that seems useful for companies, but also achievable within the WTO context. So that's those two JSIs are about facilitating trade in what we used to call the sort of behind the border areas. So things that domestic governments have control over that do affect trade, that could be resolved, and that can be done so through these smaller groupings. And these smaller groupings, they operate outside the formal multilateral WTO process, correct? Well, that's where it gets slightly tricky. So they decided at the beginning, when they, when they went down this path in 2017, not to decide. They just started negotiations and they said, when we finish them, we'll figure out how to attach this, if at all, to the WTO. And with MC13 coming, that, that ministerial conference coming, it's time to think seriously about how do we attach these agreements into the WTO. Now that is running into, unfortunately, with many things in the WTO, a few roadblocks. So one is that if you want to attach it to the WTO, you have to think hard about how are you going to attach it? Are you going to make it the first kind of agreement where the benefits flow through to everyone? Or are you going to make it the second kind of agreement where only members get those benefits? And in either case, you may have to get the approval of the full membership to hook this plurilateral into the larger legal text of the WTO. So if we look at services domestic regulation, one of the challenges that they have been having is that the members are trying to attach this agreement to their own individual services schedules. That's the method that they're trying to use to bring this into the WTO. And there are members at the moment who are arguing that that is not appropriate, that that is not something that WTO members should be doing. And there is a fairly contentious argument underway heading into MC13 about whether this will be allowed. Can you get this agreement into place by allowing the individual members to attach it to their own domestic schedules at the WTO? 
or do they need to use some other method or process? And so part of what's happening here is not so much about the domestic services regulation or about investment, or as we'll get to in a minute about electronic commerce. It's really about what is the, what is the appropriate way that you make changes at the WTO? And for some members, there, there's a difference of viewpoints on how much the full membership uh, should be involved in, in deciding what that end outcome looks like. So ultimately, we're essentially, essentially, we're saying that these, these members, they're concerned about um, essentially setting precedents for future initiatives. There's a lot of contention there. So um, it, could could you provide me? A, I suppose what I'm curious about right now, uh, going off of what you just said, is um, are there any uh, are there any specific instances that you could think of that that will be discussed at the coming ministerial conference? I'm just curious, I suppose, about uh, any bad blood in the past, if you will, <laughs> and how this will be managed. Um, you know, yes, the the past meetings have been contentious. The negotiations have been fraught. The discussion over launching plurilaterals was difficult. The negotiation process has been tough because you have to craft an agreement that you think will not only satisfy the current members, will draw in new members to sign on after the fact, and then will ultimately be attached to the WTO in some way because the members who launched these original negotiations uh, back a couple of rounds ago, wanted to ensure that the broadest possible membership could be involved in these negotiations, even if they weren't all ready at the time that they started, so that there would be a pathway to make it bigger and eventually potentially have everybody included in the end. So this has been an ongoing debate within the organization. And, and I think, let me just give the contrary view. So why do you not want this approach? You don't want this approach because you are either worried about or committed to the principle of consensus. You say, well, what do I like about consensus? Well, one thing I like about consensus is that it, it guarantees that everyone's viewpoint is heard and that when we reach an agreement among all of us, we have all reached that agreement. We have done what needs to be done in order to get this past 164 of us. And if we start allowing plurilaterals among smaller groupings, then we overcome the objections of a few. We potentially harm those people, those, those countries that are out. Um, and that could be an issue. And we are no longer committed to the principle of consensus. And consensus, I think some might argue, is especially important when you get to more controversial topics. So it's perhaps less controversial that you're going to do what you can to help small businesses, right? That might not be terribly controversial as a statement. But if I say to you, we need to think about the trade and climate connections in ways that are going to restrain the activities of some members because of whatever decision we came up with, then I think there would be members who would say, wait a second, like if that's the plan, then we need to be at the table for those discussions. We need to be fully in engaged and informed and we need to agree before it goes forward. So it's not, again, it's not so much about these specific four joint statement initiatives that are on the table right now. It's more about the broader principle and about how involved all of the members need to be in order to get to yes. Hmm. I think that your point here really um, 
it offers an excellent lead into my next question, which is about preferential trade agreements. There's been an explosion in preferential trade. Uh, well, forgive me, in preferential trade arrangements, if you will. Mm. Um, so you discussed this. Um, you discussed this at length um, through, uh, throughout your your research. And you particularly mentioned that these arrangements are noted as a safety valve, quote unquote, for tough topics, including uh, comprehensive bilateral and regional commitments that extend beyond the existing WTO commitments. So how have these arrangements evolved in scope and depth? And what role do they play in shaping international trade rules, especially in areas like the digital and the green economy? I think that's a great question. I mean, one of the early efforts in the what used to be the GATT and is now the WTO was to try to manage trade through the organization. So we had global rules for global outcomes. But from the very beginning, there was a, a loophole that had to be built in to deal with the European Union or what became the European Union as it evolved. Mm -hmm. So there is a loophole in the WTO that allows you to create smaller arrangements at the regional or even bilateral level that are supposed to include substantially all trade. It's never been tested. We don't know what exactly what that means. But that relatively modest sounding loophole has turned out to be a big challenge for the trading system because increasingly governments have turned to plurilateral or regional or bilateral arrangements outside of the WTO to get what they're looking for. So that could be lower tariffs or zero tariffs. It could be more services coverage. It could be better investment opening or investment protection after you've come into the marketplace. It could be rules on labor or the environment, different rules on intellectual property rights. It could include digital rules, et cetera. And so it go, the, a lot of these arrangements go well beyond what the WTO covers, which you can do if there's only two of you trying to argue about it and not 164. Absolutely. And one of the consequences of that is that governments are increasingly comfortable that they do not need to worry so much about what the WTO does or doesn't do because the majority of their trade, depending on the partner, may be covered by these alternative arrangements. So I'm sitting in Singapore right now. Singapore has nearly 30 of these agreements already in force. So even if, let's, let's imagine, the WTO completely collapsed, no longer functioning, Singapore would say they have enough of their major trade covered by these alternative bilateral and regional agreements that they could probably withstand the shock. Now, they wouldn't like it, just to be clear. I don't want to suggest that Singapore is turning away from the WTO. They're very invested. But they are also pragmatic. And they have to say, well, let's, let's shore up our defenses as a trade-dependent country every which way we can. So we'll we'll focus on the WTO, we'll focus on regional deals, we'll focus on bilaterals, we'll think about new issues, so that whatever happens, we are as uh, we are given ourselves the best opportunities for success. The you you go on to mention, um, because again, this is a great this is a great lead in the article mentions debates about the best, quote unquote, the best mechanism for handling member demands and suggest that these debates will certainly not be uh, resolved soon over the course of our partnership with the Heinrich Foundation. We've, of course, certainly discussed at length 
um, just uh, all of these legitimacy issues, all of these concerns that are impacting how the WTO is perceived worldwide. So what are some of the key arguments or perspectives in these debates and how might the WTO navigate these challenges and modernize its approach for the future? That's a tough question. <laughs> Let's yeah. see how, how how we can handle that one. Okay, so <laughs> so start at the, I, I, I don't know if it's at the beginning, but you know, the institution that that was the forerunner to the WTO was never designed to be an independent institution. There was a larger entity called the ILO at the time that was meant to be ITO, excuse me, the In International Trade Organization, ITO, which was meant to be the bedrock for handling trade. And it was a very comprehensive a great agreement with a lot of different parts about the institutional structure. How did you get decisions? Who was in charge? How was it going to operate, et cetera? That ended up being blocked by the US Congress. And so the solution to that problem was they took a chapter, literally a chapter out of the old agreement called the General Agreement on Tariffs and, Tra and Trade, which was just about market access for tariffs for goods. And they said, let's make that the institution. And so they pushed forward with just a piece of this larger institutional framework. Okay, now why do I always go back to that original point? Because the institutional framework we now have in 2024 with 164, soon to be 166 members, was not designed well from the beginning. And I would argue that it, especially this consensus principle, which has become a real obstacle to making forward progress, was, again, a sort of temporary solution to a problem of how do we rescue something from the ashes of the original ITO. Now that you're this many decades forward in time, it's clear that that rule about consensus, or at least about not blocking, you, you know, you don't object. So it's not that you approve, you don't vote. There is a voting procedure, no, it's never been used, but you're at least not supposed to block an outcome. And that is creating real obstacles when you have such a large and diverse group. So consensus principle is a big one. But again, how do we fix that? You're gonna need consensus to fix it. And if I happen to be one of the members who is holding up progress because I like the consensus principle, then the last thing that I'm going to do is agree to let you undo it. So you're stuck on, on the basics of how do we fix a consensus principle while we are using consensus. That's a bit of an issue. Then, of course, you have the growing diversity of members and their interests, you know, from the largest, richest, biggest countries to the tiniest, smallest, poorest countries all sitting around the table. They all have very different agenda items, different concerns. That's a problem. Uh, and the more that you add, the more challenging this becomes. And then I think a, a new problem, which is really creating issues within the system, is the largest players in the WTO have a fundamentally different view of the value of the WTO than in the past. And this is especially true, of course, for the United States, which was at the very beginning of this whole institution, um, it, willing to play a pretty strong leadership role in crafting outcomes that suited the membership, not just the US, but also the membership, thinking about course, what matters domestically, you're never going to make a decision that goes contrary to your own interests, because no government could do that and survive. 
but interest, but thinking beyond just what I want, thinking about what others want, how can we create win-win outcomes? Yes. The U.S. in particular did this for a long time. And now that the U.S. has had a change of heart, it's become a real obstacle because the U.S. is no longer pushing in the way that they used to be pushing. And there are increasing geopolitical fault lines across some of the members, most notably, of course, between the U.S., China, potentially the Europeans, the Japanese, et cetera, which is making it very hard to get an outcome. So you have diverse membership that's already hard, large numbers, challenging, consensus challenging. And then on top of all of that, you throw in a lack of leadership. And then the final piece, which I think is also important, is that you have an ever expanding agenda of things that should be discussed. There is no alternative venue for handling them, but they're complicated. You know, things like the climate and trade nexus. How are we going to deal with the trade related implications of climate change decisions or of energy decisions? How do we manage that? Who manages it? How are we going to deal with that? So this, these are big, big, tough topics. And so you put all of that together in a bag and you sort of shake it up. And at the end of the day, you have a mess because you can't get past some of these fundamental obstacles. And I think the thing that keeps people hopeful about the WTO always is that there isn't an alternative, really. I mean, there aren't a lot of other venues that you can think of that could handle this. We have a building and a secretariat and a process. So you, you want it to work as well as it can, because the alternative is that, you know, we really do have a mess. Mm. <laughs> Without question, this is a very tall order that, you know, that we are discussing. So I'm certainly very curious to see um, how, you know, how it evolves late, you know, later on in the coming month. I just have a question that's coming to mind right now. Uh, you mentioned, you know, how the United States at the beginning, at the very beginning, you know, played a much more active role. It was a more supportive role uh, within the WTO. So I'm curious as to, um, you know, how, what exactly, what exactly changed and uh, perhaps since you're sitting in since you're sitting in Singapore right now, uh, how has this change perhaps you know impacted Singapore and other Southeast Asian nations? Mm. Some great questions. So let me just give you a, a, a simple, concrete example that we just saw. Sure. The United States just withdrew in October from three parts of the e-commerce agreement on data flows, data localization, and source code. So th these are three issues related to data that are contentious and that were part of the that JSI. US announced in a very short three sentence press release that it was withdrawing. The reason it gave though, is because it said it needed policy space in order to manage these issues. Now that is a huge reversal for the United States, which has fought very hard <laughs> against mm -hmm governments in the WTO arguing for policy space, because the United States has argued for decades that there is plenty of flexibility within the WTO rules that allow for policy space, and that if you have a sort of blanket carve out called policy space, then what is the point of having rules at all? Like, why do we have rules? We have rules because you need to know what is acceptable and what is not acceptable from the beginning. And if you're now going to declare that for policy space reasons, you have no rules, essentially, the United States used to argue, what is the, what, we should all just pack up and go home, basically, because this is pointless. 
And instead, because we realize that there are some serious values that come from coordination in trade, we cannot use a blanket policy space argument for things until again, recently, now all of a sudden the United States is pushing for policy space. That is a huge shift. You also see it, of course, with many of the tariffs that were just imposed with the national security arguments the United States has been making. So it's not just one administration, it's you know different administrations have made policy decisions with regard to trade in the WTO that would have been unthinkable a relatively short amount of time ago. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, what has changed? I mean, I think it's a number of things. One is the difficulty of the institution to deliver results diminishes enthusiasm for participating in that process. Two is the rising competitiveness of others, most notably China, and the potential competitiveness challenges the United States faces that it may not have faced earlier. Three, I think, is that the agenda itself at the WTO has moved on to more challenging issue areas. It's one thing to talk about tariff reductions for, you know, tables and carpets and chairs, which can have implications for labor and employment and so forth, but that's not quite as serious as discussions about data flow. And what are we going to do with citizen data? And what are we going to do about misinformation? And what are we going to do about artificial intelligence and so forth and so on? So in the past, although we didn't have simple conversations in the GATT WTO, they were, they were more manageable. And now they are less manageable. And the United States in particular appears to have a whole lot less attitude and a whole lot less appetite to manage those kinds of discussions than it had in the past. So there's just been conflicting policies across administrations, yes? Uh, could you provide me perhaps with uh, an example or two of um, something that was decided, let's say, in you know in one administration and then in another administration, perhaps the subsequent one? Uh, it, it sounds to me like the floor was essentially ripped out you know, depending on who was in office. And then, of course, that impacted WTO relationships. Yes. So let's just talk about the argument about national security and trade. Sure. It's not that there has never been a discussion about national security and trade. And the WTO itself has a section on national security and about exceptions for national security purposes. Because, you again, think about the timing of when the WTO came into to effect, or at least the GATT. Back in the 40s, coming out of two world wars, they recognize that, you know, oh, if we have another world war, we, the, the, the rules have to change. <laughs> we can't sort of say openness to everybody is a great idea in times of actual war. So there have been discussions about national security and trade from the beginning, but all of the members by consensus agreed that those would be limited to times of actual conflict. Like, genuinely, you know, you're lobbing missiles at one another and tanks and grenades and all of that sort of thing. In times of conflict, you have the ability to change your policies. However, the United States started discussing the national security consequences of trade, especially under the Trump administration, when it said that all kinds of things, solar panels and vehicle automobiles, steel, aluminum, were national security issues. And that opened a bit of a Pandora's box to having everybody declare that everything that they were interested in could potentially be a national security issue. And so that is a fundamental change in the way the United States viewed 
trade commitments and viewed trade commitments in the concept in the in the shadow of conflict uh, with potential national security implications. And that argument about national security implications continued, not just through the Trump administration, but into the Biden administration, and will probably be in whatever administration follows, uh, because both Biden and Trump, who appear to be the nominees for the election, believe that national security is extremely important, much more important than it used to be, at least in the public conversations, and that you should not allow yourself to have national security arguments with your hands tied by trade commitments. So I think we will see both of these sides agree that national security is a valid reason for making trade decisions or a valid reason for not engaging in trade. That is a fundamental change from the entire underpinning of the WTO from the 1940s onward. Now, how does that affect everybody else? Well, once the United States has declared that lots of things are national security issues up to and potentially including something like an automobile, then everyone can declare a national security issue around food or you know rice or digital trade or you fill in the blank what there's been a precedent set already exactly exactly so again the sort of you know we've opened up this pandora's box and we've said whatever your concerns are are valid reasons for you to suspend some or all of your obligations that you had made in the past under the GATT WTO Thank you, Dr. Elms. Thank you.